of his disciples, not only of those that he was with in time and space, but those who came after uh, to you and to me. Uh, this morning we're going to be considering a, a question that is uh, that he asked to his disciples that is found in, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a question that is well known, uh, that it co coincides with uh, the opening statement uh, of the passage uh, that uh, some have declared has become the best known verse in the American Bible having surpassed John 3.16, and that is the statement, don't judge lest you be judged. Uh, if you turn with your, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, uh, let's now consider God's word. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of our Lord. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take out the log, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The word of the Lord. Let's, let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, we do come at this time as we worship in song and prayer and declaration, even in confession. We worship now by giving to you our ear, our mind, and even our hearts, praying with great confidence that you, who are speaking to us through this word, will illuminate it to us, that it would benefit us. Help us not to rest on our own understanding, but may the Spirit speak. and May we hear and learn and understand and embrace that which you would have us to hear, to know, and to do. Use just this word and this time to shape us that we might become more like Christ and that all of us together might grow in the fullness that you have created us to be. Bless us, Lord, in this time as we bless you by giving ear to your voice. We pray in Christ and for his sake. Amen. Years ago in her early adulthood, my mother was diagnosed with an unusual optical disorder. Now, all of her life, she had been diagnosed with, uh, not diagnosed, but she had tested. Every time she would take her, her eye test, she came out 2020, 2020 in both eyes. And yet there was always something that seemed to be wrong, not something that she noticed, but there was, it, was, it was not uh, the perfect vision that you would think 2020 uh, would be. And then in her early adulthood, she somehow, through uh, going to an optometrist or uh, ophthalmologist, found that her disorder was that she was only able to see out of one eye at a time. While both of us see out of two eyes, she would see out of one eye. When she would take the eye test and cover the one eye, she would get 20-20 out of that one eye. And then when she would cover the other eye, she would get 20-20 out of that eye. But her two eyes didn't work together at the same time. And so consequently, she seemed to have and believed to have perfect vision, and yet she had absolutely no depth perception. Everything she saw, she saw and she understood, and yet everything she saw was distorted in, in some way as compared to what it was in reality. 
In our text this morning, Jesus is using a, a different kind of optomical or opto optical disorder to illustrate a profound, a personal, and a universal reality that every one of us thinks that we see clearly, but every one of our perceptions is distorted. And Jesus asks this question, why do you see the speck in someone else's eye, but you do not, do not notice the, the log that is in your own eye? You know, you think about it for a moment, the picture that Jesus is painting here is, is really kind of, kind of crazy. I mean, he's, we, we understand that he's exaggerating in his statement, uh, but his, his, his principle is, why is it that you're so focused on getting the sawdust out of somebody else's eye when you have essentially a railroad tie? Because the, the word is a, is a, a beam, a, a, a log. So this railroad tie. Now, we, we get past the hyperbole, but obviously it's a, it's a ridiculous picture because nobody's going to be able to, to live or function or do anything if to have that kind of thing sticking out of one eye. Something that large would just totally encompass your, your whole being. But what Jesus is doing is he's using this imagery to help us to understand that before we set out to try to fix the people around us, which is our inclination, that we all have work to do upon ourselves. When we hear Jesus' question, we need to recognize this, that Jesus' question is an invitation for us to assess our own condition. Why don't you see the log that's in your own eye? Jesus inviting us to kind of take a, a look in the mirror and, and to see what's going on in our own lives. And, and Jesus' question is also kind of a hint to his, his assessment of, uh, of our condition. He who is God, he who is like us in every way, except without sin, he understands our situation, he understands our frame, but he's wanting us to understand for ourselves what our condition is like. And what Jesus seems to be implying here is that we are prone to judge. Every one of us is prone to judge and we want to fix others. Usually because if we fix others, then our circumstances will be much more comfortable for us. And meanwhile, while we're wanting to fix those who are around us, we just have an incredible capacity uh, to turn a blind eye to our own stuff and to justify ourselves. The reality in our own minds, from our own perspective, if everybody else in the world will just simply change, then I'll be happy. And for a lot of us, without really thinking about it, we assume that if everybody would change to make me happy, well then, they'll be happy too. And Jesus is recognizing that that and acknowledging, and he is pointing out to us that that is, that is the condition that he sees that is universal in humanity. And it's vital that we adopt Jesus' assessment of our condition. Scripture is full of some incredible things about the human condition. Think about some of these verses and what they say about you, about me, about everyone. Uh, we see in, in Isaiah 1, verses 5 and 6, your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. In other words, what the prophet is saying, and God is saying through the prophet is, from head to toe, we are, we are broken and we are wounded 
Jeremiah tells us pro, uh, profoundly in Jeremiah 17:9, not about our physical condition, but about our spiritual and our emotional condition. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And what he's saying is that our heart is, is warped. It, it is, it's broken. It is never right. So he's saying it's, it, it can't be measured, and therefore there is no cure. There's nothing we are able to do for it. Every time I, I, I think about this statement and recognize the reality of my heart, I think about certain things in life where I know that I'm slightly off, but I can adjust for it. For instance, my golf game. I have this tendency to have a, a nice fade. It, it can be nice. So what I do is I aim over here, figuring I'll adjust, and sometimes that works. Now, other times when I adjust, I somehow now all of a sudden have a nice hook, and it just goes further out of the way. But he's saying that our lives are like that, is that we have this idea that, okay, I recognize maybe I'm a little bit off, but this is the way I see things, so I will just kind of try to adjust. But our lives, our hearts are so erratic that there is no way for us to adjust and actually be right. We deceive ourselves when we listen and act only by our emotions. The Apostle Paul in Romans profoundly tells us of the, the human condition apart from God's grace. And in verse one, chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, the, the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and then who, by their unrighteousness, suppress truth. So our, our natural broken tendency is to suppress the truth. We don't like the truth, or as Jack Nicholson might say, you can't handle the truth. And then Paul says, consequently, in verse 22 and 23, and although they claim that the they is us, although they claim to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, in our foolishness, in our rejection, our suppression of the truth, and God comes to us and reveals himself to us, we don't like the way God really is, so we exchange the glory of God rather than conforming to it, and we trade God in for things that we create, that we can control, and that we can live with. And God's wrath is being poured out against that. And it shouldn't surprise us because this condition goes back all the way to the beginning, back to the fall, when our first parents, after they disobeyed God, and God confronted them about their disobedience. What is it that they did? They pointed fingers at each other and even at God. I mean, Eve said the serpent, you know, uh, made, uh, made me do it. Adam said, this woman who you gave me deceived me and made me do it. So in other words, it's her fault. But God, it's really your fault because you made her. You brought us here. We just have this incredible capacity to ignore, to justify, to deceive ourselves, to suppress the truth, to act according to our erratic emotion, and then try to make the world conform to the way that we think that it ought to function. And, and we do exactly like our first parents do. We hide. Now, they hid behind a fig leaf and, and then hid behind some bushes, thinking that God would somehow not be able to see them. But we have this tendency to hide, to, to cover up by the way that we act and by the way that we speak. We wear masks, not the ones that you're required to wear today, but we wear masks that were common in ancient theater. We wear masks to present an image that we want people to see. 
We want people, we project this image, we cultivate it very carefully. I was thinking about a, a song that Brad Paisley um, came out with, uh, it's been quite a while, in 2007, Cooler Online. And maybe there's no place more than on our social media and in our online, we do what we do in day-to-day -day life. We create this persona so that people will get this impression of us and then we shape, we think that we can control how people perceive us and therefore what people think of us. This is the human condition. This is, this is the reality for every one of us that we, that we struggle with this. What does it matter? Why do we even talk about this? And the reason is, is because if we, if we fail to see what is wrong and what is broken within us, and we don't own our own stuff, the gospel cannot take root, and therefore we cannot bear fruit. We cannot be the people that we really want to be. We cannot be the people that God is calling us to be. Now, that may seem like an extreme statement, but Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 1.9. He, he says this, whoever lacks these qualities, in other words, whoever is not bearing fruit in their lives, the, the fruit of godliness uh, in their lives, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, the reason that we lack the fruit of God's spirit fruit of godliness in our lives is because we have this tendency to justify ourselves, to present an image, to cultivate that image, to try to make everyone think that we are something that we are not. And at the same time, try to make the world conform to our perception. And when that is where our attention is given, then we are not thinking about the grace that God has already given to us. We are forgetting about the fact that we are broken and by God's grace, we have been forgiven of our sins. And when we forget that, then the power of the gospel to bear fruit in our lives is gone. This is, this is what Peter is saying. But here's the question. If we are really blind, as Peter is saying and as um, many of the prophets were saying, and as Jesus' question implies we are, then how do we become unblind? How do we begin to see things clearly? How do we begin to see things accurately? Now, the short but in no way simple answer is by God's grace. But in God's grace, Jesus gives us his instruction, even in the questions that he is asking that we find in our passage. And the second thing that we see, if the first thing we see is that Jesus' question is an invitation for us, it is a, uh, to assess our own condition, we also need to recognize that Jesus' question here instructs us to begin by dealing with our own stuff. Here's what Jesus says in verse 5. First, take out the log from your own eye. In other words, first, deal with yourself. It's very good, very practical advice. It's not unlike the advice you get whenever you fly, although it's been a while since I've flown, but the last time I flew, um, Orville and Wilbur had the flight attendant um, to say, in case of an emergency and the oxygen masks drop, put your own mask on first 
and then put it on your children or anyone who is in need of help. It, and it's the idea of take care of your own stuff first because once you deal with your own stuff, then you will be in a better position to be able to help those who are around you who are in need of help. And Jesus' question and his own statement, first, deal with your own stuff. First, take the, the log out of your own eye is right in line with that. It's a spiritual principle that's been recognized throughout the ages. Jonathan Edwards, in his resolutions, his eighth resolution, eight out of, out of 70, he, he writes this. Listen for a moment, and then I'll, I'll paraphrase it. Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody has been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Now, that's a lot of words for what Edwards is saying this, is every time he, somebody sinned against him, Every time he noticed somebody sinning, he would use that as an opportunity to recognize his own brokenness, his own sin. And the logic that he used, not expressed in, in, in this particular resolution, is this, is that he recognized any sin against him was a creature against a creature, and yet any sin of his was an offense before a living, holy God. And therefore, that in its very nature made his own sin worse than anything that happened to him. But the principle is he would own his own stuff, even if he was reminded of his own stuff by somebody else's failing. But he would begin with himself. He would take the, the log out of his own eye, and he would confess his sin because somebody else had sinned. This idea is rooted in a biblical principle. The apostle Paul, when he was writing to his protege Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, He's instructing Timothy with uh, how to not only lead a church and to shape a, a church leadership, uh, but how to live a Christian life. And Paul is his, his, his wisdom. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm worst. Now, is Paul actually declaring himself to be the worst of sinners? Yes and no at the same time. We need to recognize that what he's saying is, look, this is a trustworthy saying. Paul has understood that this is a mindset that, he, that needs to be cultivated. It's one that he has cultivated. He's now passing it on to Timothy to cultivate that within himself. And Timothy, as the, the pastor of this church, was to invest in, in the elders and, and the leadership of the church. And that they also are to embrace that mindset that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And then consequently, as the elders and the leaders of the church, they would invest in the people in the church and that everybody would embrace this mindset, this, this saying, this, this, um, uh, this, this trustworthy saying that deserves our full attention and our full acceptance until everyone begins by taking the log out of their own eye, recognizing that God in the person of Jesus Christ came into the world to save those who were broken and who were sinners. And of the sinners, we look first at ourselves and therefore we consider ourselves worst. Whenever I do premarital counseling and sometimes I have the opportunity in, in marriage counseling, I take this principle and I apply it. 
And I ask each of the partners to embrace this mindset and this statement. I want each of them to constantly say to themselves, I am the biggest problem in my marriage. And then make them say it over and over again. Now, does that mean that the other person doesn't do anything and that in every situation that whatever the one does uh, is the other person is worse? I mean, do any of you, even if I tried to pull this off, do you, any of you really believe that uh, in, in my house, if I have Carolyn actually say that, you believe that what she does is worse than what I do? I mean, I don't think I could pull that off. But it's a mindset that cultivates humility and then enables us to be shaped by the gospel because the gospel was able to take root in that soft, malleable soil of our hearts. And I can't help but thinking, what if we apply this principle not just in terms of our relationship to God and not just in the midst of conflict that we have uh, within the church at times and not just in marriage, but what about broader? I can't help but thinking as I look at the stuff going on in the world and the news and for, for months now, and certainly it's going to be ratcheted up in, a, in a, uh, an election year. But what if instead of debating and trying to tear one another apart because of our political differences, that our first act was to start thinking about what the party that I'm affiliated with, how it's weak, where's it lacking? And then come to the table with somebody who might be part of another party and they have done the same thing and we begin the conversation there, owning our own stuff, taking the plank out of our own eye. Just imagine how that would change the discourse in our culture and maybe people would quit trying to destroy one another and start dealing with the very real problems that we have in our culture and in our world. The problem is a lack of perspective, not seeing clearly, not dealing with our own junk, not dealing with the thing that is blinding us, which is often our own distorted and our warped, warped perception. And so as Jesus is asking this question, it is an instruction for us to deal with ourselves after we have been invited to recognize our own condition. But notice what Jesus says here and the end result. See, the purpose is not just for us to become humble and maybe conflicts to be avoided. But the purpose that Jesus has here is to make us useful. Because as we look at the questions Jesus is asking and his own response to it, we see ultimately Jesus' question commands and empowers us to invest in one another. This is one of the most misunderstood passages in our culture. No doubt it's crossed somebody's mind, okay, if, if, I, if I embrace this idea and deal, but isn't the right and wrong? I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't sometimes the other person actually more guilty than I am? What we need to recognize here is Jesus is not dealing with judgment itself, per se, as we, in terms of judgment, it's not about our discernment, it's about our damnation. Of course there is truth, of course there is reality. And Jesus is not saying that we should be Pollyannish about our perception of the world, or even of one another. 
That would be totally contrary to the total teaching of Scripture. Jesus, who was very well uh, shaped by the fullness of the Scripture, would understand that Proverbs 27 tells us this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, better than the kisses of an enemy. In other words, there is a time in which we do see things in others who are around us. And if they are our friend, we don't let them continue doing things that would be damaging, even devastating for them. We speak into their lives, and sometimes speaking that way is painful and is hurtful. But it is better to do that than to just let them continue on their course. Jesus would have certainly understood this. And so using this question and bringing the idea of taking the plank out of your own eye is not a matter of saying nobody else ever does anything wrong and that we shouldn't call things out as we see them, but it is a matter of cultivating us so that we are both humble and that we then become usable in a practical, down-to-earth, day-to-day, interpersonal level. We see it expressed elsewhere. Apostle Paul, having been shaped by the gospel and his confrontation and his time with Jesus, as he's writing to the church in Galatia, he's telling them that as they see people who are in error, here's what he instructs Christians. If anyone is caught in in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch of yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, it may be that our first reaction to Paul's instruction there is to think, okay, I've got to be careful of what I do because I'm going to be entering in here and I don't want to be tempted with whatever it is that they're doing. Paul's temptation is not limited to what the other person is doing. Paul's temptation he's talking about is anything that is in us that would make us blind to our own condition and insensitive to the person that we're speaking and therefore acting without gentleness, without wisdom, and without being delicate. Paul was saying that we have this tendency, if we don't watch ourselves, to jump in to fix other people and then we don't recognize that we are judging, condemning, we are damning, not merely discerning anymore. We make the cure more problematic than the problem. And Paul is giving that warning, but his warning is perfectly in line with what Jesus is teaching us here. We deal with our own stuff, and then we are able to become usable. First, take out the log of your own eye, then you will be in condition, you will be able to be of benefit to the other, taking the speck out of the other person's eye. The speck, it's like a piece of sawdust or, or something that is, is imperceptible. But I want you to think for a moment. Have you, ever, have you ever been asked to take something out of somebody's eye? Have you ever tried to do that? Now, first of all, to take something out of somebody else's eye usually requires that somebody asks you to take something out of their eye. I mean, we're not going to notice something in somebody's eye. If you are that focused, you probably need to get a life. Um, 
But when somebody has something in their eye and it's irritating, it, it is imperceptible. It's hard enough to see it on your own. And, and when you're asked to take something out of somebody's eye, there are certain realities that Jesus is implying here are the way that we deal with one another and are to relate to one another. First, it requires a closeness. I mean, to take something out of somebody's eye, you've got to get in there and you've got to look really because you're dealing with something that is pretty minor. It may be hurting, it may be painful and devastating them, but it is imperceptible unless you're really, really close and looking. And the reality is when we are involved in the lives of others, we have to be able to be close in order to be able to see what the problem is and what the problem isn't. And that actually is inviting us to be closer than maybe many of us are comfortable being at times, but there is no way to be able to take a speck out of somebody else's eye without being close. It requires careful attention and it requires gentleness, otherwise you can do more damage than good. We see that in our own lives at times when we are lacking the gentleness or we're not really paying attention, we think we see, but we don't really see because we've not dealt with our own being. We don't log in our own eye. And then we go in and we create damage, damage to the relationship, damage to the person's self-worth, damage to the person's functionality. When you take something out of somebody's eye, it's an investment in their welfare. You do it because they need it. You do it because they want it, not because whatever's in their eye is annoying you. See, God has created us for community. And in that community, he's called us to invest in one another, to encourage, to help, to build up until all of us reach the full measure of maturity, of being like Christ. Jesus uses these, this analogy of taking something out of somebody else's eye, preparing ourselves by being aware of our condition, dealing with ourselves. And, and we don't get to the point that we have perfect vision, but we must be in process before we are in position to be of any benefit to one another. So here's your assignment for the week. to go one week, that will make it easier. Go one day without judging someone. And I'm not talking about right and wrong. It's like, you know, if your neighbor gets out in the front yard and starts shooting up everybody else, that's wrong. We can call that that. But I'm talking about the, the judging, the condemning people who just get on your nerves. Like my children would tell you, like the guy who is in front of me at a red light trying to turn left, and he doesn't go. And the light is going to turn, and I'm not going to get to go. I mean, I think that guy should be, well, in prison for quite some time, um, at least at the moment. That kind of stuff, that when you catch it in your own life. And maybe we'll do it more like a game. Let's do it like a World Series, so best out of seven. See if you can do four out of the seven days where you are able to not be critical, condemning, and, and judging of someone, whether it's somebody you know or just somebody who is passing through your orbit. If you take it seriously, here's what's going to happen. 
this is not my challenge. Some of you are familiar with sonship. The, the, it's, it's, a, it's a variation of what was known as the, as of, the uh, of the tongue test, which is say nothing critical for uh, a week. And in the tongue test, what happens is people that take it seriously, they get started, and then pff, an hour goes by. Maybe some people are really disciplined and really nice. You know, the night goes and the morning comes. And then they say something critical, and they want to start all over again. So the next thing they do is they resolve to say nothing at all for a week, as in, you know, a vow of silence. That way they're not guilty of anything. Well, in the critical thing, this is the same idea here. Without condemning, without judging somebody, be aware of your temptation because it's not even a matter of what you say. It's really a perception. It's your, it's your attitude. And for those who take it seriously, you're going to get frustrated. And you're going to want to just quit. Stay home all week and that way there will be nobody passing through your orbit and you therefore won't have anybody to judge unless, of course, you turn the TV on. And others of you who are going to take this seriously are going to start the process and you're going to fail. Some of you are failing right now as you're judging me for giving you this assignment. And you're going to want to give up. And you're going to feel like a failure. And that's exactly where you need to be. So the beauty of this passage is not just in the question, but it's even in the, in the, in the, in the setup statement. By whatever measure you use, that's the measure that will be used on you. And so when you're ready to give up, now you're ready to ask yourself, by what measure do you want to be judged? And the answer for every one of us is, I want to be judged by grace. I want to be reminded that Jesus came and paid for all of my sin. And therefore, since he's already paid the penalty, there's no penalty for me to pay. I want to be judged in that way. And we recognize that that's the measure that we want. By God's grace, we recognize that's the measure that we are to give. Be reminded that as John says in his epistle, if we are faithful to confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that's our God. That promise reminds us that God forgives us the junk that we own. And that more than that, he cleanses us from that junk. And that he's preparing us now to be a benefit to the people who are around us. May God be at work in us this week. As I pray and as I move, we're going to invite you to join me in the prayer. As we'll finish this prayer time with the, with the declaration and the offering of the Lord's Prayer. Father, we pray with thanksgiving.